Let's pray together. Father, as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15 today, we will see in your word, quite simply, uh, a display of the entire redemption story as we have gone astray and rebelled against you and rebelled against why you created us and delivered the authority that we were created to rule and reign with over to the enemy, and yet, out of your love, you send your son to take on flesh and to undo every bad thing that humanity has ever done and to take the penalty for our sin and to give us life that we certainly don't deserve and then destroying every enemy, every rival authority and delivering the kingdom to you. What an unbelievable passage, ending with us getting a peek into eternity with you as we are raised with Christ. I pray simply that your word would do what it's meant to do and change our hearts, that we would not simply be Christian in name, that we would not simply be Christian in a Bible Belt culture, that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and calling him our Savior and our Lord would not simply be a thing we do because it is acceptable in the South or normal or perhaps a cheap thing that we do on Sunday but do not do the rest of the week, I pray simply and ask humbly that your spirit would change our hearts forever, that you would rewire our affections to love you and long for you every hour of every day, that this might not be a cool thing that happens in the end, but rather a reality that we live in now. That's what we ask, Father, as we look to this word. We pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Growing up, I'm starting with a nice, fun story of, of me to, to get you engaged. Uh, that's what they teach you in preaching class. Growing up, I was a very plain, picky eater. Plain's probably a better description. Uh, description. I'm dyslexic. That's why uh, I don't talk good or read good. What that means is, as you're growing up, apparently, I found out later this was common for dyslexics. When you're reading a menu, it's somewhat overwhelming. You know, you barely get past the appetizers. The waiter comes, asks you what you want. You don't know because you've only, you know, passed queso and things like that. And everybody else at the table has cranked through that menu and they know. So what I did as a young kid to avoid this problem is once I found a meal that I liked, I had that meal forever, every time we went back to that place. And really, any time we were in that genre of food, okay? So chicken fried rice, chicken tenders, burgers. You know, I had like seven meals that I ate for 22 years. Then I got married, and my wife said, enough. You're not six anymore. We are branching out. We're done with this ridiculousness that everyone around you has unlovingly let you kind of sit in your whole life. Uh, And so my whole adult life has basically just been uh, one of trying new things. And what I found out is that I actually love a lot of food, which has made my wife upset. She's like, you've just deprived yourself for 22 years of all these things you actually liked, you just would never try. But for the majority of my experience the past few years, it has been, do you want to try this food? I don't know. And they offer a taste. Eat the taste. That's great. Now I want the whole meal, right? Sushi, what's that? Gross. What are those green things? Those are fish eggs. No, thank you. Eat it fish eggs taste good. Whatever that is, can I have more, right? So that's been kind of my entire eating experience since the beginning of marriage. Get a little taste, and then I want the whole thing, right? Just what the first taste leads to. And I tell that ridiculous, uh, self-deprecating story because Paul today, as we continue to look at the resurrection, as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians 
15, we're going to see Christ called the first fruits, the first taste. His resurrection is the first taste of your future resurrection. His resurrection is the first taste, that first little sushi roll, whatever it's called, of your future resurrection that is to come. Not just a historical event, something that happened way back when is just something that's written in our history books, but has eternal ramifications for your hope and your eternal future and eternal ramifications for the putting away of every rival authority in the universe. So we're going to continue to walk through this. We've said as we've been looking through 1 Corinthians, Paul's just been handling issue after issue. This church is just really messed up. So first couple chapters, he's, there's all these divisions that he's addressing, then a whole bunch of sexual immorality that he has to address, then food being offered to idols, and then spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. And then today, uh, the past couple weeks, we've been walking through the last main issue, which is the Corinthians, these Christians have denied the resurrection. And we talked about how each uh, week, as we walk through this for like six or seven weeks, will build on itself. So we've seen two sermons thus far. The first was the foundation. Christ came. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he was raised. And a whole bunch of people witnessed it, right, to say what? It happened. That's the foundation of the argument. Christ was raised last week. Jeff talked about all the consequences of denying the resurrection. If the ridiculous falsehood that the Corinthians are believing is true, what are all the consequences? Christ himself hasn't been raised. Your faith is in vain. We've been misrepresenting God because we said God raised Christ from the dead. We're still in our sins. There's no hope for those who have died. And to finish it all off, we are, as most people, of all people, most to be pity. That's the consequence of denying the resurrection. So we've got the foundation. His resurrection happened. The consequence of denying the resurrection. And today we're orienting to reality, not the ridiculous foolishness that the Corinthians are saying, but we'll see in the first three words. But in fact, in reality, Paul's going to say Christ has been raised. And here are the implications for that unthinkable reality. So today we're going to look at three things, the fruit of Christ's resurrection, the fruit of Christ's resurrection, the order of Christ's resurrection, and the restored humanity of Christ's resurrection. The fruit of Christ's resurrection, the order of Christ's resurrection, and the restored humanity of Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 20. We'll start off. The fruit of Christ's resurrection. Verse 20. But in fact, in reality, in truth, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So we're going to camp out here for a little bit in verse 20 because calling Christ this, this idea, first fruits, that's going to be a key identifier of Jesus Christ really for the rest of this chapter. So we're going to spend some time unpacking this, that Christ is our first fruits. Uh, if you have been reading through the Bible and you've gone to Exodus and Leviticus, you've probably already seen several places in the Old Testament where we see first fruits commanded to be brought to God. You see Israel literally as the harvest is growing, coming up out of the ground. I'm not a farmer. I don't know the terms. As a harvest comes up, Israel was meant to take the first fruits, the literal first ones, offer it to God 
You'd also do this with your flock. Offer it to God, and it meant two main things. One, it was a promise of the things to come, right? Here's the first fruits dedicated to you. Really, all this is yours, but here's the first piece that's dedicated to you, and it's a promise of the future harvest that is to come. And secondly, it is a representation of what is to come. It was meant to be kind of the best of the crop or the best of the flock that represents the rest of the harvest that is to come. So Paul, think about this, Paul calling Jesus Christ, in particular in his resurrection, the first fruits of our future resurrection is saying two main things. First of all, Christ's resurrection is directly connected to your future resurrection and my future resurrection. In a sense, it's almost as if the resurrection of all humans is one event and Christ's is just the first Taste. It's this connected event. So I, I, ran, I ran track back in the day. You'll always hear uh, Jeff or Tim talk about years ago, there was this question of who's the fastest on staff and all that. Uh, and it's me. We haven't raced yet, but I'm, I'm positive. Uh, so I ran track back in the day. And uh, one of the exercises we would do that I can't believe they let us do is he had like a harness and then a bungee cord and then another harness connected to another human being. And they would run and eventually that thing would catch and you would run. And the whole point was to lengthen your stride so that you cover more ground and all that stuff. So us being teenagers did that zero times, but instead played fun games like sprinting in the opposite direction and you know seeing who would win. Or you take off sprinting and I'll sit here and see if I can stop. And it is impossible. It is impossible. The second that cord catches, you are yanked forward and there's nothing you can do about it. That's almost the picture Paul is painting here. His resurrection happened 2,000 years ago. And one day at his return, his resurrection will rip you out of the ground. It's the first of the same event. He's the promise of our future resurrection, the first taste of our future resurrection. Or to say it another way, for your resurrection to fail, to not happen, Jesus Christ would need to go back into the tomb and he's not going back into the tomb. It's the first taste of what will happen to you one day as you are raised. So the promise, that's the first thing, and then second, representation. His resurrection isn't just a promise, but it is a flawless representation of the type of resurrection you and I will experience at his second coming. We don't get some sort of JV version, okay? The first fruits is meant to be the best of the best, but to say this is what the rest of the crop will be like. His perfect, glorious resurrection is what ours will be like. Again, say that in the reverse. You want to know what your resurrected life will be like? Look at his. Look at Easter. Look at what we celebrate in Easter. It's the promise and the perfect representation of our future resurrection. Again, it's not just a historical event we believe factually. It has everything to do with our future hope. It has everything to do with the core of our salvation. Why is this so central, Paul would say? Because it has everything to do with what God is doing in his ultimate plan of redemption. He doesn't just want you to die and get you to heaven. He wants to get you out of the ground into the new heavens and new earth. You see that. The goal is not leaving this shell of a body. That's Platonism. The goal is, yes, to be absent from the body when you die, to be present with the Lord. That's better than here. But the goal is second coming, putting away all of his enemies, your body being raised and glorified, and you spend eternity in your glorified, sinless, perfect body, seeing him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. To deny this is to deny what God is doing in redemption. That's why it is so absolutely central 
to our faith. It's the first taste of what ultimately we will all experience. What an incredible thing. But we're only in the first verse. Let's keep going. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, it seems like Paul's kind of switching subjects. He's not. He's actually fleshing out what does this mean for Christ to be our first fruits. What he's saying, Christ brings in the reality of resurrection, and so now he's going to back up here and go back to the first man and ask the simple question, what reality did the first man bring in? What reality did Adam bring in? So Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, put in God's perfect creation to reign and to rule, to have dominion over God's perfect creation, that when they're reigning and ruling, they're doing it on God's behalf, people would look at them, they would be looked at and say, oh, you represent the creator of the universe. And we know how the story goes in Genesis 3. They don't get far. Adam rebels, sins, and brings in the reality of death into this perfect creation. Not just for themselves. It's not just Adam and Eve who are going to die, but everyone that comes from them, you and me, all human beings. At the top of every family tree is Adam. All of our family tree, we're somehow related. Adam is the father of all humanity. So I, again, another thing that makes me cool is I love ancestry stuff, you know. When you're popular, you do things like look at family tree things. Uh, And I have two kids, uh, a two-year-old boy and a one-year-old girl, and, you know, when you have kids, you do the like, oh, what's me? You know, does he have my nostrils or whatever? Uh, and Joe, our daughter's a bit harder to tell. Harvey is like, nose up is mom, you know, nose down is me. And specifically his eyes. His eyes are Claudia's eyes. And Claudia's eyes are her mother's eyes. And her mother's eyes are her grandfather, Claude, who's actually my wife is named after. So he, he uh, we look and he is very distinctly the same eye shape passed down these eyes, right, all the way to my son. What has Adam passed down to his descendants, you and me, all of humanity? What has Adam passed down? Not his eyes, although maybe, I don't know. We don't know what they look like. Death, a rebellious nature and a destiny for death. That's what Adam has passed down. All of Adam's children, you and me, all take the fruit All of us say, you know what, I think it's better if I decide what's good and what's evil and not really trust God to do it all. We all try to be God and we all have, because we all have Adam's nature. Adam, as the first fruit presented before a holy God, right? Here's the first fruit of humanity. What's the rest of humanity going to be like? Sicked, or sicked, wicked, sinful, and rebellious and destined for death. By one man came death. In Adam, all die, right? That's who we are in Adam. That's who we are as humans, dead in our trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath, no one does good. No, not one. No one seeks God. We're of the family tree of death. That's who we are as humans. And because the problem comes from a man, the solution, the salvation also needed to come from a man. And so the eternal God the Son comes down, takes on flesh, becomes a man for our salvation, and lives the perfect life that Adam didn't live, that you and I have never lived, 
takes the penalty, dies the death that you and I deserve, and gives us the resurrection life we do not deserve. That's Easter, right? Christmas and Easter. In the same way that from Adam comes death, now from the second Adam, this new man, son of man, comes life, comes the resurrection life. Adam brought the reality of death. Jesus brings the opposite reality, the reality of freedom from death, resurrection from death. Adam's first fruit says these people are destined for rebellion and death. Jesus' first fruit says these people are destined for glorified, perfect, eternal life. He undoes everything that Adam broke. Irenaeus of Lyon, one of the uh, great, really earliest uh, thinkers in the early church in the second century, says this about Jesus' ministry, excuse me. Rich in mercy was God the Father. He sent the creative word who coming to save us was in the same place and situation in which we were when we lost life, breaking the bonds of prison. And his light appeared and dispelled darkness of the prison and sanctified our birth and abolished death, loosening the same bonds by which we were trapped. And he demonstrated the resurrection, becoming himself the firstborn of the dead and raised himself raised in himself fallen man, raised him above the highest heights to the right hand of the glory of the Father as God had promised by his prophet saying, I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David. Our Lord Jesus Christ truly accomplished this, gloriously achieving our salvation that we might truly be raised up, saving us for the Father. He comes down and undoes by taking on flesh everything that the first man did and in doing that becomes the ultimate human being, becomes the new man, the second Adam. Adam's ultimate derailing of God's purposes are made new in Jesus. Jesus doesn't fail like Adam does in the garden. Adam's in a garden with Eve, given the commandment, eat of anything except this, and they rebel. They say, my will, not yours. Jesus goes into a garden hours before he is about to take the eternal wrath meant for you and meant for me. And he gets on his knees and he prays. And what does he say? Not my will, your will. He succeeds where Adam fails. And his resurrection as a result of his success, as the success of the perfect human is now given to us. He gets us out of the family tree of death into the family tree of life life in him. So, if you are a Christian, that is your reality. If you are a Christian, that's not just some nice thing that we believe. That is the reality that you have been brought into completely by the action of the living God. So, the question is, does that change how you see absolutely everything? Does that change how you view cancer Does that change how you view suffering? Does that change how you view persecution? Does that change how you consume the news? Fear doesn't flood into your heart. Anxiety doesn't flood into your heart anymore. Cynicism doesn't flood into your heart anymore because you have a Savior who said, in this world, you should expect tribulation. The world's going to hate you. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Do not fear those who kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Your Savior says, I've done everything. Does that break into your reality, or are you just as stressed out as the rest of the world? When you see the news, is it the exact same, or does the reality of the gospel, that is reality, whether you like it or not, change how you 
see everything? Does it change how you see the gospel? God didn't just fill out some paperwork and say, you know, yeah, you're saved. That just means, you know, I've declared you this and it's just come some abstract doctrines, but you see your savior as coming down from heaven and ripping you out of this state of death, this family tree of death and bringing you into the family of life saying, God is not just your creator, he's your father. Does it change how you see the gospel? This is why this is so central. His life, his death, his resurrection has everything to do with your life and your death and your future resurrection. So that's the first point. Jesus as the first fruits, the first taste of what you will one day experience, both as a promise and as a representation, undoing the death brought about by Adam, getting us out of this first human, this first Adam family tree into the second Adam family tree, his family tree. And so now, next, verse 23, Paul's going to kind of zoom out a little bit and explain a bit more. He's the first fruits. So the natural question would be what? When will, he's the first, when will the rest of the harvest come in? Okay, he's the first fruits. When will the rest of the harvest come in? Next, Paul's going to talk about the order of Christ's resurrection. Okay, verse 23. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, that's the question. He's the first fruits, when's the rest? coming in. Let's look at the first two pieces of the order. Verse 23. First, each in his own order. First, or Christ the first fruits. So Christ, 2,000 years ago, already happened. Then at his coming, second coming, those that belong to him. That's you and me. Or if you're a Christian, that's you. At his coming, the rest of the harvest will come in. Notice, Paul's getting very specific. It's not just all humanity is saved by Jesus as a result it's those who belong to him so not universalism right not this blanket wiping out but those who trust in him those who are in Christ those that belong to him and then second notice again our ultimate hope is not that in death we would just float on off to heaven but our ultimate hope is in his return at his coming we will be raised glorified made new and we will be with him Jesus in the upper room as he's about to go to the cross in John 14 is around the table with his disciples. They're troubled. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going away in my father's house. There's many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he doesn't say, and when you die, you'll come join me. What does he say? And I will come again and get you that where I am, you may be also. That's our ultimate hope. At his coming, we will be resurrected and glorified. Those are the first two. And then next, look at verse 24, next in the order. Then comes the end, the day of the Lord, when he delivers kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Paul's zooming out from our, our kind of personal salvation to now kind of the redemption of the whole world. Jesus destroying literally every rival authority and power that would fight against the kingdom of God. Uh, the Corinthians are living in the day where Rome is basically owning the world, conquering the whole world, this would have made a lot of sense to them because Rome, you know, they're over the known world and you know, they didn't have Google Maps yet or Google Earth. And so when a, when a rebellious king, they can't just, you know, text, hey, 
get in line or else I'm going to come get you. They would have to hear a a little province had rebelled. They would send an army to totally destroy it, remake it, and then the general would come back and say to the emperor, I have restored your authority in the kingdom, in this rebellious land. And Paul is saying that is exactly what Jesus Christ is going to do to every rival authority in the end. Put them down, restore them, or destroy them, restore them, and deliver the kingdom to the Father. Again, remember, Adam and Eve created in the image of God to reign and to rule, given this kind of dominion that they immediately surrender. They think they're taking this dominion for themselves, that they can rule instead of God, but really they're surrendering it over to the serpent, to the enemy. Why is Satan called the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, all these different things? Because human beings who were meant to reign and to rule on God's behalf surrendered the authority over to him. When Satan tempts Jesus, one of the temptations is what? He takes him, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and says, if you just bow down to me, I'll give this to you. How can he say that? Because it's been surrendered over to him. Every rule, every authority, the prince of the power of the air, this evil rule that we have surrendered over to him. But where Adam failed in surrendering that authority over, God sends his son to become the true human and to destroy every rebellious rule and every authority and restore everything to the Father, getting us back to the garden where he reigns and he rules. And then lastly, the last piece of uh, the order is verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What does Adam ultimately bring in? Even when he's put in the garden and God says, eat of everything except this one tree, what's the one consequence mentioned by God? When you eat of it, you will die. Death is the one curse that's brought in. And what Paul's kind of zooming in on here is what Adam brings in when he fails in his ruler role is going to be the last thing that Christ takes and puts away. Christ succeeds again where Adam fails. Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Paul, again, showing what was originally broken, God's good creation, perfect, very good, death breaks in, is what Jesus is going to conquer. How? How does he conquer this death? Again, Irenaeus says this, the transgression which occurred through the tree was undone by the obedience of the tree, which was shown when the Son of Man, obeying God, was nailed to the tree, destroying the knowledge of evil and introducing and providing the knowledge of good. So by means of obedience, which he obeyed, hanging on the tree, he undid the old disobedience caused by the tree. Or if you don't like Irenaeus, the great Puritan uh, author John Owen has a book that I've never read, but the title is very interesting, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. He defeats death by giving over his life and being resurrected from the dead. And here we see the second coming. Death will ultimately be thrown away. There is no more death in eternity. There's death now. We live in this already not yet state where death is still a reality, but it has no sting. We'll see that in a couple weeks. Where is your sting? We'll be raised to life. And here at the second coming, we'll see he ultimately throws it away. So again, it's this picture of ultimate victory. Everything that is bad in the world caused by us, caused by Adam and Adam's descendants is totally undone. Every knot we tie, he unties. Everything we break, he remakes. Every wound we cause, he heals. Total victory, total restoration, total redemption. 
Jonathan Edwards, when he was, I think, around 18, one of the first sermons that he preached was called, uh, Why Can a Christian Be Happy? Which makes you kind of think, you know, that sounds like a teenager's sermon. Uh, But his outline was this, which is actually brilliant. Why can a Christian be happy? Why should this reality change your daily existence? Number one, all our bad things will be turned to good. All our bad things will be turned to good. Number two, all our good things can never be taken away from us. And number three, the best is yet to come. All your bad things will be turned to good. All your good things can never be taken away from you, and the best is yet to come. Paul here is painting this beautiful picture. He is going to undo every bad thing caused by Adam. Every wicked authority ruled over by the enemy is going to be undone. The good will come in. It can never be taken away from you. He guarantees our salvation as the first fruit, and he's going to bring us into this glorious kingdom as he delivers it over to the Father. All your bad things will turn to good. All the good things can never be taken away from you, and the best is yet to come. And honestly, when I was studying for this, I made a joke in uh, theological equipping that I don't study. I do. Uh, When I was studying for this, these are the types of passages that are the hardest for me to preach because there's not some sort of kind of moral point to bring out and be like, this is why, you know, you should stop being so mean in your marriage or whatever. Uh, But rather, it's just Paul is displaying the glorious reality of our salvation, and all I want to do is just say, look at that. Look at who your Savior is. That's not a very good application point, right? Just look at this passage. Read it over and over again. Look at this glorious salvation. The eternal God the Son came down, Jesus Christ came down because of our failure, takes on human flesh, undoes every bad thing that we ever did, takes the punishment we deserve, gives us the life that we don't deserve, and brings us into the very family of the living God where we can have fellowship with him for all of eternity. Colossians 1, he's transferred us out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That's the reality of our salvation. So I guess my only question is, does this consume you? If this is your reality, does the reality of who your Savior is and the future hope that you have in the gospel, does it consume your days, your affections, your plans, your hobbies, your hopes, your dreams, or do you just kind of do the Christian minimum of, you know, yes, I become a Christian, I accept Jesus into my heart, and then you basically live your life saying, is this sin or not? And if no, I just do it. And you kind of just stay you know, wading in in your ankles. You just kind of do the Christian minimum. Are you, as C.S. Lewis said, are you far too easily pleased? Are you playing with mud pies when you've been offered infinite joy of the holiday at the sea? Uh, When I, growing up, uh, I was dyslexic. I'm just kidding. Uh, Growing up, uh, when I saw marriage, marriages, my kind of uh, perception was marriage is where you do romantic stuff. That's where you hug and you cuddle and you do all the romantic stuff. But the fun stuff, the stuff that you enjoy in life is when you leave and go hang out with the boys or you go hang out with the girls. Uh, That was my perception, right? Romance, fun, you know? And uh, I'm married now. I have been for a while and I can count on one hand the amount of times I have desired to leave Claudia to go hang out with other people, even my best of friends, simply because I like her more than everybody else. 
And I'm not saying like, oh, I'm such a great husband. I mean, I, I literally just, I think she's cooler than you. And so I, I, I want to be around her more and more and more. And so if you see me at a social event without her, I, it's begrudging. And I'm probably texting her of how I'm gonna try and lose poker on purpose to leave early and all those kind of things, right? Now, again, I don't say that because I'm a great husband. I, I can't help it. The more I get to know her, the more I love her, the more I like her, the more I just want to be around her, more and more and more. I don't have this weird dichotomy of romance stuff, fun, exciting things. Now, when you think about your walk with the Lord, your relationship to Jesus Christ, is he the one you go to for all the salvation stuff, but the stuff you really look forward to? The exciting things of life, the joys of life happen elsewhere. You come to him for the salvation and the not hell stuff, but the stuff you really like you go elsewhere because if Jesus who is who he says he is, if the Father is who he says he is, if the Spirit is who he says he is, he is an infinite ocean of joy and he has invited you in to fellowship with him. Does who your Savior is and what the gospel is, the reality of the gospel, consume you? Or is it a nice thing before you move on to other stuff? Now, I'm not saying this isn't some sort of hyper-pietistic legalism thing. If, you, if there's something that's neutral and you call it sin for the sake of pietism, that's sinful legalism. All I'm saying is you've been invited in to the holiday at the sea. You've been offered infinite joy. Why don't you put those mud pies down? I mean, they're fine. I know it's fun, but you've been offered something far, far greater. Robert Murray McChain, a Scottish pastor from the 19th century says this, Jesus, he, Jesus, is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and such meekness and grace, all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no room for folly and for the world and for Satan and for the flesh. Behold your God and let it purge everything else out from you. He's talking about sin, but you get the picture. I think the more you draw near to your Savior, the more you learn about who he is, the more you learn about his love for you, TV shows just kind of lose their grip. Or to quote Paul in Colossians 3, if you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, if this is the reality of your life, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Here's the reason. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, and Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Why should you set your affections on the things above, on your Savior, on the reality of the gospel? That's where your life is if you're a Christian. That's where your life is. Does this consume you? Again, it's not really a point Paul's bringing out. That's just what I'm saying as Paul is just displaying the unthinkable glories of your salvation. Nothing this world can do to you can hurt you. If you're in Christ, he will raise you, glorify you, wipe away every tear, heal every wound, and bring you into eternal fellowship with himself. That is guaranteed 
because he's the first fruits. That's what Paul is saying. And so do you behold that? Do you drink that in? He's our first fruits. This is the order, him, us, then total victory. And then Paul's going to zoom out even more a little bit to give us uh, an idea of the finished work of Christ and then really a glimpse into eternity. And so last piece, the restored humanity of the resurrection. Verse 25 through 28. Uh, We're going to back up a little bit. Yeah, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put, uh, put in subjection, it is plain, obviously, Paul. Uh, we weren't confused by this at all, by your phrasing. It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected, subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I love it when Paul does that. Obviously, you know, you guys can tell what I'm saying. I could have written this easier. Uh, Wrong. That's why I have to preach this to explain what you meant 2,000 years later, Paul. Uh, Okay, so Paul here is drawing on two psalms, two very, very popular psalms in the day that he's writing. The first is Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, and the second is actually Psalm 8. So look at verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the quote. That's Psalm 110 right there. That's, again, a messianic psalm, a psalm about one day someone will come from David's line that will be a king that will put away all of his enemies and that will reign in the eternal kingdom of God forever and ever. So Paul's quoting this. Makes sense, right, to us. Jesus is the conquering king who will reign forever. He's David's great-great-great-grandson or however many greats there are. So messianic psalm. And then Psalm 8, we see in verse 27, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And if you read Psalm 8, I think we preached it. I think I preached it uh, a year ago when we were doing our psalm series. It's, a, it's not a messianic psalm. It's not a psalm promising a future Messiah. It's a psalm about creation, which is a little peculiar. A psalm about creation where God is creating all these things and the creation is declaring the glory of the Lord, the sky above his handiwork. All of creation is praising how great God is. And then it zooms into man and has this question, who is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. And then it has this quote, he put all things uh, subjection under his feet. What's Paul getting at here? What's Paul getting at here? Again, by quoting this creation psalm, Paul is showing, again, drawing on this idea that Christ came not just to be this conquering king, but to fulfill what you and I, what Adam and Eve were meant to do in the first place in creation. He came to reign and rule perfectly as humanity was always meant to. He's done what we were meant to do, but failed to do. And his success in doing this isn't just us saying kind of like, thank you, Jesus, you did that, good on you. Rather, his success is restoring all of us back to this place of reigning and ruling as we were created to do. Or say it another way, he gets us back to the Garden of Eden. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the second Adam gets us back to the Garden of Eden. Except now, in the Garden, we don't just know God as our Creator, we know Him as our Father. We don't just know Jesus as the Word that goes forth from the Father, that all things were created uh, through and for, but we know Him as our Savior, as our life. We don't just know the the Spirit as one hovering over the waters. 
bringing calm to chaos. We know him as our very life, one who dwells in us and bears the fruit of God. Again, Christ's success as the perfect human brings us out of that first family tree of death into his family tree of life. It's not simply, your salvation is not simply dying and go to be with God. It's being restored to God's plan in creation. Or again, to say it another way, the resurrection is not the end of the story. In a way, it's the beginning. Your resurrection, revelation, resurrection is really the beginning of the eternal story where you will reign in a glorified body with him forever and ever as humanity was always meant to. Paul is showing that the one who is the exact image of God has restored those made in the image back to what we were originally meant to do. And then verse 28, here's where a lot of confusion comes in. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. This is, there's some controversy as of late with verses like this uh, where people think this is kind of maybe diminishing Jesus's uh, divinity. Is, is Jesus a lesser God if he's under the Father or something like that? And historically, what the church has always said is don't let the order, for lack of a better term, of the Trinity make you think lesser. The church has always historically confessed we have God, the Father, who is eternally begotten, the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And then they say, you know, go back, the Son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And then you have the eternal Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, A way that we summarized it when we did our church history teachings, we were covering that early church section, was there's a hard line between God and everything else, between the Creator and creation, and the sun goes above the line, and the spirit goes above the line. So don't let order make you think lesser. It's kind of an unnecessary controversy in my opinion. But even in the context of this verse, what Paul is talking about is not the Trinity in eternity past, but rather the mission of your triune God. The Father sends his son to redeem and sends his spirit to sanctify. We even get kind of a picture of that in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as sons and daughters. So you see God sending his son, Jesus being the sent one, doing all the redeeming, bringing us into adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So you see that picture even in Galatians 4. God sending his son to redeem, to bring us into adoption, sending his spirit to sanctify, to make us cry, Abba, Father, give us this spirit of adoption. So what Paul is showing here, he's not making it really a Trinitarian statement. He's actually showing Jesus's work is done. What the Father sent Jesus to do, again, read John. You'll see Jesus all the time say, I came, came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The, the one who sent him, Jesus' work is done and delivers the kingdom over to the Father. You've noticed this passage is really like a mini redemption story. You see Adam, you see the fall, you see Christ coming, you see us being made new, you see enemies being defeated. And here in the last verse, you see res- restoration back to the creation that God may be all in all. 
And we actually get a glimpse here into eternity where Jesus has restored us, not in Adam's family tree, but in the new family tree where we have been made this new creation. Now, Christ is the head of this kind of new humanity. Why all this talk about being born again, about nature changing, about hearts being hearts of stone being pulled out and hearts of flesh being given, or what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come because Christ has restored us to this new humanity where we're no longer destined for death. We're destined for resurrection life and eternal life with him. He's gotten us back to the garden. Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. No longer kicked out, no longer a cherubim with a sword turning constantly, guarding God's presence. The dwelling place of God is with man, a new heavens and a new earth, creation as it was meant to be, and creation restored as God sent the Son to do. So, showing, essentially Paul painting this picture, the work is finished. God is all in all, as if the fall didn't happen, except now we know him as Savior. We can know God as Father. We know the depths of his love for us because of our pardon. He's done it all. So that's essentially this passage, is just seeing this incredible reality of your salvation. And I said a second ago, does, you know, does this consume you? And I know, I know, so many of us, even me as I say that, so many of us when we talk about, does this consume you? Does it you know, consume your affections. Do you watch TV like a bad person? You, you think, yeah. Uh, no, it doesn't consume me. And so do I, am I not a Christian or what? And shame floods into your heart rather than delight. And if that's you, I would say after this, go home, open up Psalm 42 or open up Psalm 103 and see people who are crying out to God and literally talking to their own soul. Why are you so downcast Oh, my soul, hope in God, rise up, praise God. Or the psalmist of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and reminding himself of the gospel. He heals all your diseases. He forgives all your iniquity. See people in the psalms who are in the exact same place as you, in the exact same place that I often am. And remember, God's the one that put those psalms in there, as if to say, this is normal. The Christian life is not one of hovering in perfect delight all the time, un, you know, swayed by the things of the world, but also notice what they're doing. They're not just resigned to the fact that, I guess I don't really delight in God. That stinks. I guess I won't be a varsity Christian like other people. What are they doing? They take that to God and they say, please change my heart. Yelling at their own soul, delight in God. Why are you so downcast? Look at who your God is. So, Take a passage like this that displays what an incredible reality and just meditate on it and beg the spirit of the living God, make this real in my heart. When I see what appears to be the world crumbling around me, let me not be filled with fear and anxiety, but rather hope that A, you told us this was going to happen and B, you have overcome the world. Let, when I think, what, where do I get meaning in life? Where do I get pleasure? Where do I get satisfaction? Let that uh, magnetize me to you. I don't want to drift to other lesser things. I don't want to handle mug, mud pies anymore. I want the holiday at the sea. I want infinite joy. Pray those types of prayers because the psalmists do. The prayer book of the Bible says pray those prayers. Don't resign to the fact that 
I guess I'm just not that way. Think about who your Savior is. Think about who your God is. Not one that says, come be better, but rather, I've come down because you couldn't be better. And so I was better on your behalf, and now my life is the first fruits of your future life, him doing it all, destroying every enemy, healing every wound, wiping away every tear. As Samwise Gamgee says, everything sad will become untrue because of what he has done. He has restored us to this unthinkable, thinkable, glorious reality where we will reign in eternity with him forever, beholding his glory, sharing an infinite joy that is fellowship with him, and we get a taste of it now. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I thank you for this. There, there's almost nothing we can do to make ourselves change. There actually is nothing we can do. Your spirit has to do everything. You've given us spiritual disciplines. We can fast. We can pray. We can read your scriptures, but you have to change. You have to open the eyes of our hearts, Ephesians says, that the eyes of our hearts must be enlightened. We pray that you would do that that your word would just uh, penetrate our hearts, that lesser things would just fall away, not because they're sin, just because we don't want to waste our time on them and certainly make us hate sin, make us despise anything that would ever point to our own pride, to our own works, that would point our eyes away from you, that we wouldn't behold your glory. And like Robert McChain uh, prayed, we just pray that you would fill every chamber of our hearts with love, love for you, and that it would banish really everything else, not that we would be Uh, monks in solitude, unable to engage in the world, but rather at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, we would be a representation of what does it look like to live in fellowship with the living God? What does it look like to have a peace that surpasses all understanding? What does it look like, as your church has been a witness for 2,000 years, to be peculiar in an age of anxiety, to have a peculiar peace, a peculiar trust in you in an age where nobody trusts in anything? I pray that you would do that. That is a miraculous work, but you are the God of the miraculous. And so we pray that you would do this in our hearts. We pray in your son's name, amen.